Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, we are nearing the end of Second Peter, continuing to look in chapter 3 of, of what Peter says in response to those he warns about will come scoffing at the promise of the coming of the Lord, denying that that will happen, to use the language of John in 1 John. These are people who would be antichrists. They deny that he's come in the flesh. They deny that he will come again. And we are again continuing to look at Peter's response to the presence of these false teachers who are among these Christians presently and will be still in the future. But we're going to look uh, specifically as we look at our text this morning, not only at what he says will come in the future, but what that means for us and how our lives should be shaped in light of the end. So our text this morning comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. And uh, we will read together verse 8 down to verse 13. Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, all throughout your word, you make many great and sweet promises about the future, about the hope of your people, about the fact that when we die in the Lord, we go immediately to be in his presence, but also about the fact that our eternal home will not ultimately be in heaven without a body, but will be on earth in a new heavens and a new earth 
with resurrected, glorified bodies dwelling with you forever in Emmanuel's land. You warn as well about coming judgment that leads to this new creation. And here as we see in 2 Peter, it calls for us, this hope calls for us to live lives of godliness as we prepare for that great day to come. And so, Father, I pray for our time this morning. I pray that as we make our way through your word, as we meditate upon these promises as well as this call to godliness, that it would not just be a matter of knowledge that we take within our heads and do nothing with, for in that case, we would be wasting our time. But Lord, that you would cause it to work down into our hearts so that the whole of our lives are shaped by your word, by your promises, and by your commands. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. The uh, Puritan, Thomas Fuller, he once told the story of one of his friends who had been pestered over and over again by this cunning man who swore that he could tell him his future and wanted to tell him his future. Of course, men have been playing these kinds of tricks for a very long time, right? Being able to or claiming to be able to tell your future, tell your fortune, tell you what's going to happen in the next uh, you know, few years or 10 years. And of course, everything that they always say can never actually be verified. It's been going on for a long time. So this man was continually being uh, pestered, but Fuller's friend replied to the man. He said, for things to come, I desire not to know them, but am contented to attend divine providence. But tell me, if you can, some remarkable passages of my life past. He knew, of course, that the man was a fake, right? So he told him, he said to him, don't tell me the future. Tell me something about my past, something that can be verified. And of course, since the man was nothing more than a false prophet, he couldn't do it. But he went on insisting that he could tell him the future, tell him of things that were to come. And Fuller, commenting on the fact that this sort of thing was actually quite prevalent in his day, said, there are in our age a generation of people who are the best of prophets and the worst of historians. <laughs> they know nothing of the past. Another Puritan, Henry Pendlebury, similarly wrote of the many false prophets who had arisen in the 17th century, all claiming to know the exact year when Christ would return. He said, there are some who told us that it would be the year 1675, others the year 1680, others the year 1688, others 1695, and some tell us that 1700 will put an end to the world and open the great opening day. And of course, uh, what was true then is still true today. We have had men who claim that they have calculated somehow by some divine mathematics where you 
open up the Bible and, you know, it's, 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 it's like a code that has to be decoded. And they've discovered the code and they've figured out the mathematical precision of the Word of God such that they can predict now and, and discover the exact date of Christ's return. We had claims in the 1980s, men claiming to know when Christ was going to come, around 86 or 87. We've had claims in the 1990s. We've had claims even in the 2000s. I think the most recent of which, or perhaps one of the most uh, more well-known, was that of Harold Camping. Right? And time and time again, these have been proven and shown to be utter nonsense. But many people, unfortunately, get wrapped up in all of this sort of prophetic fervor and decoding and secret knowledge of the Bible. Right? They see some event that's playing out in the world and some teacher claims to see something that no one else has ever seen before in Scripture. And this thing that he sees describes the events of the present world. And then it gives him a justification to persuade others about this secret knowledge he has discovered and about the day and hour of Christ's return. And people eat it up. They're led astray. This is what the problem has been. This is what we've been missing for all this time. And now this fellow, he's discovered it. And if I attach myself to him, well, I'll really know what is true and what is false and when Christ will return. Many people are led astray by this, and there are many reasons for it. There are many factors that go into why this happens and why people get caught up into all of this sort of anti-prophetic fervor. But one reason has to do with a very weak and unbiblical eschatology. Now, the word eschatology has to do with the study of the last things, or what Scripture teaches about the coming of Christ, about the final judgment. Oftentimes as well, when people think of eschatology, they're thinking about particular views on the millennial reign of Christ, a millennium that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. You're either pre-mill or you're a-mill or you're post-mill. And this morning we're not going to get into the meaning of each of these and all of the, the peculiarities and the merits and problems of each, but how you understand Christ's return in relation to the millennium described in Revelation 20 is one of those points of eschatology, the study of the last things. However, you can be absolutely spot on. You can be perfectly right in terms of your particular views of eschatology and your views of Christ's return in relation to the millennium. You can have an accurate understanding of these matters. You can summon all of the biblical text in defense of your position and still have an incredibly weak eschatology. If you are not connecting 
your views, your eschatology to godliness. If you have not brought the intellectual connection of what is to take place in the future and connected it to your life now, you've really missed the whole point of eschatology. Those people who get caught up in all of the end times fervor, the date predicting, they certainly have all kinds of different errors that they fall into when it comes to biblical interpretation and similar matters. But one of the most fundamental errors they commit and that others commit who have more biblical views of the last times. One of the most fundamental problems is that their views of the coming of Christ are often radically disconnected from godliness. It has no effect practically on how they live in accordance with the commandments of God. It's an intellectual exercise that has almost zero connection to the heart. And when that's missed, you've actually missed the whole point. In virtually every single occasion, the New Testament speaks about the last days and the coming of Christ and the last judgment. It is always connected to how you are to live now in godliness. And the same is true of the text that we're in from 2 Peter. Peter is, of course, as we've seen so far, he's in the midst of refuting those who would deny the coming of Christ and the future judgment. But his point in this passage is not just to expose the unbiblical nature of the claims, though he certainly does that. The point in confronting and correcting the eschatological errors of scoffers is to exhort Christians to live in godliness. According to Peter, your eschatology does matter. It matters a lot. But what matters most of all about it is that you have connected the future with how you are living now. New Testament scholar George Ladd once described eschatology as the presence of the future. It has to determine, as it does here in our text, it has to determine determine what we do even with our day-to-day lives. The decisions that we make, the choices that we, we make in accordance with the Word of God or not. So as we look at this passage, I want to give you this morning, I want to give you three reasons to pursue godliness. And, and each of these are related to what is coming in the future. These are, these are in essence, uh, motivations or or reasons 
that Peter is giving to us for why in our day-to-day lives we are to be in the pursuit of godly living. The first has to do with the purposeful patience of God. We are to live godly lives because of the purposeful patience of God. Now, again, we must remember that in the context of 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter has been speaking about those who deny that Christ will return in judgment. They're they're scoffing at the idea. It's absurd. And in the first part of the chapter, he reminds us of God's first universal judgment against the world that occurred in the flooding of Noah's day, and he draws a parallel with what will come upon the world again in the future when God judges the world a second time, but now by fire. But one of the other objections that the scoffers make in this passage is about what appears to be a delay. There's an apparent delay. If judgment is coming, if judgment was promised long ago, why is it taking so long? Isn't that enough evidence for you to recognize the world just continues on as it always has? And it will go on and on and on with no final conclusion, if you will. And to this point, Peter responds in verse 8. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. He is alluding here to a verse from Psalm 90, verse 4, which says of God, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. God is not bound by time as we are. He is the creator of time. He inhabits eternity. He is timeless. And therefore, in his eyes, The passing of a thousand years is really just but a moment. Now, this, of course, does not mean that God is incapable of understanding how long a thousand years can seem to us. It simply means that he is not operating on our own timelines. For us, a typical long, um, long life is... 80 to 100 years, you know, that's a long life for a lot of people. And so with, if that's a long life, you know, 10 years for us seems like a very long time. Well, this is not the case for God. He is not bound by time as we are. However, Peter's point is not just to state that God counts or considers slowness different from us. His point here is really to explain why, from our perspective, the promise of his coming seems so long in its fulfillment. And everything comes down to the patience of God. 
It has to do with his patience. Peter says in verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, sometimes this particular verse is essentially ripped completely out of its context and made to be some sort of universal statement of God's intentions for all men everywhere. He does not wish, he does not intend anyone on earth to perish, but for all to reach repentance. But by golly, that darn will of man just keeps getting in the way. You know, God wants to do one thing and man wants to do another and God simply cannot overcome that strength of the will of man. He's too obstinate. And then, because of this sort of universalizing of the text, the atonement itself becomes universalized such that Jesus bears in his body the wrath of God against all the sins that have ever been committed by everyone who has ever lived. But because men have rejected him, the atonement becomes void. And so what does God have to do? He has to pour out his wrath a second time in judgment for the same sins. So in this view, sins inevitably have to be punished twice. Because the first time when Jesus bore them, it was ineffective and it was rejected. Now, one could avoid these stranger theories of atonement if texts like this one were just read in context. Who, he asked, who here is Peter speaking to? Again, follow the subjects from verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Verse 9, he is patient toward you. You, beloved. Who is the you? Well, of course, it's the same you that Peter has been speaking to since the very beginning of the letter. These are Christians. These are people who, though being surrounded by the influences of false teachers and being warned against them and exhorted to persevere and to grow in godliness, are also said to be those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, chapter 1, verse 1, and who are established in truth, chapter 1, verse 12. He is speaking to those whom he is confident know the Lord. And he's saying to them, God's promises are not slow, beloved. He's giving a message of encouragement to believers. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any, any of who? Any of you should perish, but that all should reach 
repentance. This is a particular answer and a particular promise that is directed towards those who believe. Now, is God patient with unbelievers? Well, absolutely he is. He makes the sun shine on the just and the unjust alike. He causes the rains to fall on the just and the unjust alike. He is patient towards all. But there are two very different intentions in that patience. One sort of patience that is repeatedly extended to those who remain in rebellion and who are not his sheep is compounding their condemnation. The more that they rebel against the patience of God, the more severe their judgment will become. And then there is a redemptive sort of patience that is intended for his own. This is the kind of patience that Peter is speaking of here. He is giving a specific promise that is intended for those who know the Lord. God will not let you perish. We've heard those sweet promises many times before, even in this letter. God will keep you. He holds you. You are his. You belong to him. There is nothing that can ever snatch you out of his hand. No trial, no suffering, not even death itself. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is the promise that Peter writing to those who know the Lord and he's saying to them God will never let you perish it is his will for you that you should reach repentance and repentance of course as we know is not something that you just do one time in your life and then you're done it's not just some an action that you do at the beginning of your Christian life it, it's just a matter of conversion and then it's over from that point no this is an ongoing characteristic of godliness that you grow in you're going to stumble you're going to sin but the mark of a christian is that your life is one of repentance you're not going to embrace sin but you're going to flee from it no matter how many times it takes if you remember from last week as we were looking at the, the, the need, the uh, responsibility we all have to, to be in the Word. And, and how often do, do Christians, real, genuine Christians, they, they read the Word for a little bit and then they, they get wrapped up in the world and it, and it falls by the wayside and then they get all guilty because they haven't been reading their Bible and sometimes that guilt just keeps them away altogether. But what Scripture tells us is that you have to repent. You have to get back in it. You have to go to the Lord. And then if you fall again, repent again. Repent is a grace of the Lord. Your sin should not provoke within you the reaction of Adam and Eve in the garden where you hide yourself 
though there's no such thing as hiding from the Lord. Your sin should be such that it, when you come to see it, by the grace of the Lord, it drives you to the one who forgives you your sin. Right? That's, that's what repentance calls us to do. And when you do this, this is evidence of the Spirit of God at work within you. And what Peter says here is that one of the reasons God has not yet fulfilled the promise of his coming is because of his intention to see all of his people reach repentance. He may have a people a hundred years from now that he intends to save and sanctify and glorify, and so he will not come until he has made them his. So his perceived slowness is not because he's hesitating to keep his word, but because he's merciful and gracious. You may know people in your own life, children or family or friends who don't know the Lord. And though you can say of yourself, I love him and I love his appearing and I long for his appearing, you cannot say that about them. And so in a very real sense, you should be grateful for the Lord's patience as you continue to try and save them from the wrath to come by exhorting them to trust in Christ. Right? It's, it's really a both-and thing for us. We want Christ to come soon. We also want Him to wait until those we love and we've been sharing the gospel with repent. And that delay is His patience towards sinners. Now, not only is the Lord's patience in fulfilling His promise to come one of the reasons to pursue godliness all the more, but as the text continues, we find that another reason is the coming of the day of God itself. The, the, the coming of the day of God is another reason for pursuing godliness now. Now, in verse 10, Peter speaks of the day of the Lord, which he also refers to as the day of God in verse 12. And the day of the Lord is, of course, a very common phrase that refers to God's judgment. In the Old Testament, sometimes it would refer to national judgment, where Israel is brought under the curses of the law and destroyed and exiled by foreign nations. And then other times, it clearly has a reference to that final judgment of God where he destroys and conquers all of the ungodly. This is its meaning here. This latter idea is its meaning here. And Peter says that this day of the Lord will come like a thief. So, so, so there may seem like there's a delay now, but it will come. And when it comes, it will come like a thief, which is a very common theme, a common image when Scripture speaks of the day of the Lord. Paul himself, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, says similarly, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief 
in night. No one will expect it. There's not any planning for it, any date prediction. It will be sudden. It will be something that comes without even a moment's notice. But when it comes, it will be like a match that has been lit and falls on gasoline. There will be, at that moment, a sudden combustion. The fire of the very presence of God will suddenly consume everything. Peter says that the heavens will pass away with a roar. And if you're familiar with literary terms, this is a, the, the word he uses here is an onomatopoeia. It's one of those words that sounds like the very thing it's referring to. It's like our word whoosh, right? It's, a, it's not only a word, but it's making the sound of the rushing of wind. And that's, that's the kind of word Peter uses here. The heavens will pass away with a whoosh. He wants us to understand the very real, literal combustion that will take place. When a fire erupts into an explosion, right? You hear it. You hear the sound that it makes. And in the same way, the heavens will be consumed like this in a moment. Likewise, he says, the heavenly bodies, or, or, or probably more, more likely here, the CSB has it, the, the elements, the most basic fundamental building blocks of all of the earth, all of wax. The mountains will be laid low. The hills will become valleys. But like we considered last week, this fiery wrath of God that comes upon the world will also be purposeful and intentional and calculated. It will be, in a very real sense, a refining fire. Peter says that then the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Literally, they will be found. This is a, also a common judicial term that speaks of the rendering of judgment about something. For, for example, in Acts chapter 24, when Paul was facing a trial before Felix and the spokesman of the Jews, Tertullus, spoke against him and said of Paul, we have found this man to be a plague. That's their verdict. And similarly, this fiery judgment of God will find the earth and its works. God will render judgment by it and His fire will serve as a refining fire. Just as fire is used to purify gold and remove its dross, so also will God's judgment consume all that is evil so that what remains when it rushes through will shine like pure gold. Now, notice in verse 11 what kind of inference Peter then draws from this. 
In verse 11 he says, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And if we stop there, I think for, for many who are more worldly-minded, the conclusion would be, well, let us do whatever we want. Nothing matters. Everything's going to be destroyed. Everything's going to be consumed. The heavens above, the earth below, all of it will be dissolved. So who cares what we do now? Who cares if we build houses or don't build houses? Who cares if we labor for righteousness in the land or not? Who cares about what goes on in the world now? It's all going to be dissolved anyway, right? This is not how Peter reasons, though. When we want to think about the world, we want to think about our lives in it with a biblical lens. Part of developing a biblical worldview of being to think about the world and ourselves in it, part of what is involved in that is paying very careful attention to the inferences that the biblical authors themselves are making. How are they viewing the world? How do they see themselves in it? And if I am drawing inferences from a certain doctrine or a certain truth that do not agree with the inferences that they're drawing, they're not the problem. I'm the problem. And I've got to conform my thinking to theirs, to God's. I have to see the world as God sees it. So what what does Peter say? What is the inference that he draws from the fact that everything will be dissolved? He says, since everything is thus to be dissolved, how, how are you to live? With lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies or the elements will melt as they burn. Because of what is coming in the day of God, my way of life is to be marked by holiness and godliness. This fiery judgment will be the sort that purifies the heavens and the earth in the same way that the flood destroyed the old world and then a new world was formed from it, so also will this fire in the day of God consume all that is evil so that what remains is righteous, good, pure and holy. And if we conclude from this that it does not matter how we live, we we will, we will find ourselves in the company of those who are consumed like dross. But if we cultivate godliness, 
And if, since we have the Holy Spirit of God, we conduct our lives in holiness, then we will pass through the fire and will come out on the other side shining like gold. To use the language of John in 1 John 3, verse 2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Having been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and having walked in the good works that were prepared beforehand for us to walk in, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we will, as it were, come through the fire. And when we get to the other side, we will look out in front of us, and there before us will be a world we could never have imagined before. A world that is now completely renewed. A world without decay, a world without a curse, without death, without destruction. A world where everything is in perfect harmony. It will be full of radiant light with no darkness at all. And as we look to the source of that light shining brightly, we will not have to cover our eyes as we do when looking at the sun. It will be a light that shines brighter than any light we have ever seen before, but strangely a light that we can look directly at. And as we look at that light, we will see that the source of it is none other than God himself. We shall see him as he is. And as we see him, we will look down at our own hands. And we will look down at our own feet. And we will suddenly see as well that our very own bodies have been transformed, raised to be glorified bodies without the stain of sin, without the clothing of death wrapped around us any more. No longer will our bodies be in a state of decay, but they too will be strong and righteous in the presence of the Lord and we will worship Him and sing His praise. And as we shout from the top of our voices with all of the power of our lungs, we'll never miss a note. We will come through the fires of God's judgment and see on the other side a glorious new world and new creation. What remains and what is purified through God's judgments will be holy and righteous and good. And therefore, what we do now is in preparation for that day to come. 
It is a cultivation of holiness and godliness because that's what lasts. Those are the treasures that we are to store up in heaven so that when that day arrives, we will, as it were, come out on the other side fully intact because the Lord has been working godliness in us from the beginning. Which leads me to the final reason for pursuing godliness, which is the promise of God. Peter says in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now this is not a new heavens and a new earth that still contains elements of sin in it. And this sometimes my pre-mill friends will reference Isaiah 65, verse 17, the Lord says there that he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And then they look at verse 20 where it says, the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be a curse. And they say, look, there's death in the new heavens and the new earth and they're sinners. And they fail to recognize the poetic nature of the text and the fact that that very text is drawing from all of the images of the blessings of the Mosaic Law. In other words, Isaiah is painting a picture of this new creation to come, and he's using all of the images of a prosperous land, of the fruitfulness of the womb, of not fearing enemies, all promises that are directly described as blessings from the law. And he's saying the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like this to an infinite degree. But the details, they aren't intended to be pressed into literal nonsense as it would be if a young man dying when he's 100, is understood as a literal blessing. I don't care if you're Methuselah, who lives 969 years. When you die, that's not a blessing. That's a curse. And the new heavens and the new earth are not marked by a curse, but by blessings. Our labors will not be in vain. There will be no thorns and thistles. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food, Isaiah says. He's, he's drawing there, of course, from the curse that came upon the world in, in Genesis 3, and, and the serpent's going to be defeated picture of the curse being lifted. And when the curse is lifted, there is no more death. There is no more sin. 
Indeed, when you get to Isaiah 66 and the Lord speaks of the new heavens and the new earth again, we find his people from all the nations worshiping him in his presence, but all the wicked being cast out. They're nowhere to be found. And Isaiah 66 is another one of those passages where Isaiah is drawing on the common imagery of living under the Mosaic law. There's going to be Sabbaths. There's going to be new moons. There are going to be Levites. But somehow the Levites will be made up of a people from all the nations. How does that work? How are you a Levite if you're not actually descended from Levi? They are using the images of the Mosaic Covenant and the curses and the blessings to paint the picture of the total reversal of the curse and blessings being poured out on the land where there is no wicked at all. In fact, in verse 24 of 66, as we read earlier, it says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is then echoed again in Revelation 21 when John speaks of the new heavens and the new earth where the presence of God will dwell. And he says in verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the new heavens and the new earth comes, which is what Peter says is the promise of God that we are waiting for, what will remain in it, what will dwell within it will be righteousness and righteousness alone, not righteousness mixed with unrighteousness of any kind. And because of this, because the direction that history is moving in towards a final conclusion where God and man will dwell together and there is no longer any sin, our lives now are to be marked by this same godliness and righteousness. Paul says of Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The conversion of sinners into saints, of those who were once enemies of God into Christians, is as if the future new creation has begun to break into history already. The process of the renewal of all things begins with people. God's people. In the beginning of creation, of course, God began by making the world and then placing man in it. But as he remakes it, as he reverses the damage of the curse and of sin and of death, he reverses it also by reversing the order of his creative works. He begins by remaking man so that he will become fit for the holy ground that is to come. For God who said, 
let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as this was his first creative work in the beginning, to let there be light, now in the new creation that has begun already to break into the present, he begins by causing light to shine first within the hearts of his people, giving us sight to see the beauty of Christ Jesus. He begins by remaking man. He sent his son to be a new, a second Adam, a new representative for all who would be born again by the Spirit of God and the one who would be the first fruits of the resurrection. And from Christ on, all who are united to him by faith are renewed until at God's appointed time we join him in the resurrection. And when man is made new and all of God's people are purified, glorified, made spotless and without blemish and made fit to stand on holy ground, then will come the new creation and the new Jerusalem and the new garden in which man and God dwell together. This is the promise that he has made to us. A land, a real land of righteousness, tangible, walkable. We will live. You understand that? I want to stress that point over and over again. The final conclusion is not a disembodied state. The final conclusion of all history is a new heaven and new earth that has been joined together. And we will walk on that earth. We will work on that earth. We will serve on that earth. We will have kings who bring tribute to the Lord from all over all over the world. This is a tangible hope that we are given in Scripture. And we are to prepare now for its coming by living now in righteousness and in holiness and in godliness. Our life out in the world, but also here within the context of the church is preparation for what is to come. You may consider it as training wheels. You learn now how to forgive those who have sinned against you. Because the Lord has done that for you and you're going to live for all eternity with them. You better figure it out. You learn how not to harbor bitterness because there's no bitterness in the new heaven and the new earth. You learn how to love one another now because that new heavens and that new earth will be marked itself by love, by peace. So friends, these are 
These are our motivations. As we look forward to the future, what they imply for our lives now is that we are to live in godliness in preparation for what is to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is hard to even grasp the immense blessings that are to come for those who are in Christ. It's hard to even wrap our minds fully around what a world looks like that does not have sin and the curse all over it. You give us these promises and you give us a foretaste of it even now as you convert us and make us new. Give us a new birth. Adopt us to be heirs of the kingdom to come. You give us a foretaste of it in our salvation and a foretaste of it within the context of the church. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us here. I pray that our church would bear, no matter how small it may be, that it would bear the marks of the new kingdom to come. I pray as well that in our own lives, in our walk with Christ, that we would see ourselves in light of what you are already beginning to make and, and work within us. You will make us without spot and without blemish. And so every day, by the help of your Holy Spirit, we strive to walk in godliness. And so, Lord, we do pray for understanding. We pray for wisdom in these matters. We ask as well that you would indeed make us godly and holy before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.